So, <laughs> so you know, this lecture, um, pretty much we've gone over everything with the kitchen sink in terms of OBGYN. So basically, I kind of went through like the board review books and looked at the stuff that we didn't cover in any of our lectures. So it's kind of a haphazard uh, lecture, but um, but hopefully we'll cover some good high yield stuff. So uh, this apparently is something that you can get at Disneyland, and it's called the kitchen sink, and they actually like serve it in the kitchen sink, and it looks pretty delicious and vomit inducing. Question already? Where do I go at Disneyland? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> All right. So first thing, um, <coughs> appendicitis in pregnancy, just to know that once pregnancy progresses later, uh, as you can see in the figure, the appendix kind of slowly creeps up uh, with the cecum over time as it's displaced by the uterus. <laughs> this is not uh, aliens versus predators. <laughs> and uh, even though you, you, they can have right upper quadrant pain, the most common presentation is still right lower quadrant. In terms of imaging, ultrasound is a preferred modality, um, so that's always going to be the answer on the test is your first go-to is an ultrasound. If that's negative, however, you progress to MRI, and then, and then um, if MRI is unavailable or going to take too much time, as in, you know, they're going to perf potentially before you can get an MRI, then you can do the CT, obviously explaining the risks and benefits to mom. So just that, that has been in medical education, that slide of the rising during pregnancy for since I was a kid, and it's wrong because the, and what you said is right, which is the clinical presentation is really no different than without pregnancy. And anatomically, you'll see the cecum and, and, and all of that rising. <coughs> Surgeons see the, see the normal appendix doing that. However, there was a huge series. It was either from a charity hospital or Tulane, someplace in New Orleans. Over, over 20 years, they went back and looked at all the pregnant abbeys and found no difference between the location and the presentation and the right lower quadrant between them and non-pregnant patients. It was really an interesting paradox. This was about three, four years ago. So the answer on this test is still this, but just as an illustration of how dogma gets into this, and this, you'll see the slide, just Google pregnancy and, you know, appendix, and you'll get the slide. That's may have been what I did. representations of it. Next thing, um, septic pelvic thrombophlebitis uh, occurs after delivery. Uh, what happens is the uh, site of placental <coughs> attachment becomes infected, and then it thromboses the myometrial veins that are, are next to it. Um, you have an increased incidence after C-section. Diagnosis is with the CT abdomen pelvis, and you can kind of see it up there. There's a positive arrow sign showing you exactly uh, on that left side what it would look like. And then you kind of treat both simultaneously the um, thrombophlebitis with anticoagulation. 
uh, either heparin drip or full-dose Lobinox, and then broad-spectrum antibiotics, <coughs> uh, pretty much as you would endometritis. Um, so it's, it's usually going to prevent with like pelvic pain or like lower abdominal pain, low, fevers potentially. Um, you just have to have a high clinical index of suspicion. Yeah, you'll get the CT because you'll be worried about perforation and such, and they'll, they'll show the clot in the vein. The radiologist will pick that up, and then you put it together that it's septic because of the fever, the white count, and the toxic appearance. Pretty um, so just something that we should kind of know a little bit about, emergency contraception, there's pretty much two kinds. Uh, the most popular is actually listed second, uh, Plan B, it's a progestin only. Um, it's effective up to 72 hours after intercourse, and it decreases the likelihood of pregnancy from a general incidence of 8% uh, to just 1%. Um, and it's supposed to cause withdrawal bleeding, and it can cause nausea, potentially vomiting as well. Uh, Mifepristone is the other one. Um, so Plan B is over the counter. Mifepristone is not, or not over the counter, but you know you can get it from the pharmacy. Oh, it is over the counter. You just grab it off the shelf. Wow. Oh wow. Um, the other one is mifepristone, which um, you need a uh, prescription for. It's more commonly used by obstetricians after fetal demise or, you know, when helping try to facilitate <coughs> um, an abortion up to 49 days. Okay, a little game. Okay or not okay in pregnancy. So these are the list of vaccines. MMR? Not okay. Varicella? Not okay. TD? Yes. Okay. Pneumococcal. Yes. Okay. Tdap. Yes. Not okay. Oh. <laughs> uh, the new one though is the new the new Tdap. The new Tdap because it's acellular. Yeah. Um, influenza. It's a trick question. <laughs> if it's a live vaccine, as in any live vaccine, it's not okay for pregnancy, but if it's the killed vaccine, it's okay. So they can't get the intranasal one. Warfarin? No. Not okay. Penicillins and cephalosporins? Okay. Yes. Okay. Four No. Azithro? Yes. Nitro, if you're yes. yes. INA trifampin? Yes. So actually, this one's kind of surprising. <laughs> Um, but uh, when you guys, the interns especially do your rotation at, um, at Long Beach in the clinics, you'll see like tons of women on INA trifampin because when they got their pregnancy TB, it came back positive. Um, and the OBGYNs will argue that it's the best time to do it because you can't drink anyway. So you're killing two birds with one stone. <coughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> so phonemized? No. No. Okay. Oh, last last slide of this, I promise. Phenytoin? No. Valproic acid? No. Nystatin? Yes. Okay. Cotribuzole? Okay. Diflucan? Yes. No. So that's a good to know because, um, you know, for a lot of these yeast infections, there's this pretty simple one-time dose of diflucan, but you can't use that in pregnancy. They have to use the, I mean, you can, but, you know, try the clotrimazole cream first. Do you usually recommend the clotrimazole rather than the one-day? I don't know why that is, but generally speaking, they'll, they'll recommend the monostep 7 rather than the monostep 1. So I'm not sure why that is, but... Uh, adenosine? Good to go. Ibuprofen? No. And then finally, one more slide of things that are all okay in pregnancy, things that we use very commonly, it's good to know. Um, so Zofran and Reglan are both pregnancy class B, um, so you should use those before you try Compazine or Phenogen, which are pregnancy class C. Um, a lot of women, because of the uh, <coughs> progesterone stimulation, get reflux, so ranitidine, cimetidine, and Toms are all okay. Good to know that Maalox is class C. Um, and then Benadryl and acetaminophen are also okay. So, what? <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, uh, just, you know, the more you know. Uh, so lymphogranuloma venerium is a serotype of chlamydia trachomatis that causes um, inguinal adenopathy. It's generally unilateral, painful adenopathy, but can be bilateral. Um, it can involve the the penis, the inguinal area, the vulvar area, and it, you can also have rectal ulcerations. Um, treatment is with 21 days of doxycycline erythromycin, so it's a lot longer than with the you know regular stereotype of chlamydia. And sometimes the um, lymphadenopathy can involve the anus and lead to anal strictures, so that's a potential complication. This is what it looks like. Oh, I hope you guys are done with breakfast, by the way, because this begins series of unfortunate pictures. Chancloid, <laughs> <coughs> um, caused by Haemophilus ducrae, presents as a painful genital ulcer, which in the textbooks, you know, chancloid's painful, syphilis is not painful, but that's not really real life. Um, syphilitic lesions can be painful in real life. Um, it's vesiculopustular, generally produces a foul discharge, also produces inguinal adenopathy, but in chancroid it's usually bilateral. Um, syphilis is obviously the thing to rule out here. Uh, diagnosis of chancroid is going to be clinical because all the smears and cultures aren't very reliable. And the treatment is with azithromycin PO times 1 or ceftriaxone 250 IM times 1, which are the treatments for uh, chlamydia and gonorrhea respectively. So, you know, always safe to just treat everything when you have somebody with one thing. And you'd get an RPR on this kind of patient, or really anybody who's treating for an STD, you should get an RPR for syphilis on. It's the great mimicker, and they tend to be together. So I haven't had two positive RPRs over many years. No, that's not been people who have suspended. Two others. Okay. So syphilis, uh, caused by Tryponema pallidum, which is a spirochete. Um, in primary syphilis, you have the, you know, textbook quote-unquote painless ulcer with a raised border called a chancre. Um, am I saying that right? I never know. Chancre? Okay. Um, and, then, and then in syphilis, you have generalized... 
Yeah. So uh, you have uh, generalized lymphadenopathy. Um, so you, you also have axillary and then cervical in addition to just inguinal. In secondary syphilis, you get a viral syndrome um, with the typical rash, including the palms and soles. Uh, Jason, what other rash is, includes palms and soles? An infectious rash. Rocky Mountain spotted fever, good. Uh, tertiary syphilis, you can get gumas, which are kind of soft tissue, uh, swellings, growth, malformations that generally affect the nose. You can also get Charcot joints, which is a genera degeneration of the joint surfaces due to loss of proprioception. Charcot. And clutton joints, which are essentially bilateral knee effusions. Um, and then in the more severe forms, the syphilis can affect the brain and the heart. So this was a, um, Dr. Elmer Fay had an unfortunate, um, no, sorry, not this picture. They had, a, had an unfortunate uh, run-in with the dictation system. <laughs> so this is the RAS, the vesiculopustular lesions on the palms and, and soles as well. So we know who that is. Hernan Cortez. Famous explorer, you can see his knees. He's got the uh, Charcot Clutton joints, um, and they presume that that's from tertiary syphilis. This is uh, Sir William Davenant. He's an English poet and playwright. Um, you can see his nose is kind of jacked up from uh, gumas, kind of eroding into the nose. He's like, you know, Shakespeare's little prodigy person. Obviously, not quite as famous. So the diagnosis of syphilis, um, in primary syphilis, the VDRL is 80% sensitive. In secondary syphilis, it's 100% sensitive. It uh, becomes positive three to six weeks after infection. Um, and if you have anyone with a generalized body rash where you suspect it, it, it can be, because of the high sensitivity and the fact that it's 100% sensitive in secondary syphilis, it can be used to exclude. You also get false positives with HIV, malaria, Lyme disease, and lupus. The definitive diagnosis of syphilis is with uh, direct visualization on dark field microscopy, and you can see the uh, spirochetes there, a little, you can see the windiness of it. Treatment of uh, both primary and secondary syphilis is just one dose of 2.4 million units of penicillin GIM. In case anyone's wondering, this is a website. Uh, now it's healthypenis2013.org for syphilis and other uh, common <coughs> diseases. <laughs> so moving on to delivery complications. Um, so for syphilis, you're always going to manage this with somebody from ID and get them on the phone because this is not something we're going to see very often. You're going to need all kinds of advice. Some of these people in secondary syphilis, they recommend doing an LP to exclude neurosyphilis. <laughs> Good note. Uh, so, um, nuchal cord, it happens in 25% of deliveries. Um, if it's loose, you know, you want sli to just slip it, slide your finger underneath and slip it over the head. If it's tight, they actually recommend um, cutting it, cutting the cord while it's at the perineum, um, and then, you know, just promptly delivering the baby. 
Hopefully we won't run into any of these, but things that are good to know. Uh, cord prolapse, uh, the cord's coming out before the baby, and the baby's kind of squishing the cord underneath its presenting part. Um, so elevating the fetal part, in this case, would mean, you know, you're going to slide in there and push his little bum up so it's not squishing on the cord. Um, and then at that point, you got to keep it there until they open and take the baby out from the from a C-section. Uh, shoulder dystocia, basically, as you can see here, the shoulder is kind of stuck behind the symphysis pubis right there. I don't know what this guy's hand, why he's like pulling on the cheek, but, um, you know, just a picture. So what are some things we can do for shoulder dystocia? Superpubic pressure, not fundal, um, so just pressure right behind the symphysis pubis. Um, and then the McRoberts maneuver, sharply flexing the hips. Uh, just sharply flexing the hips and uh, and pu pulling the legs back. Um, so those just doing that uh, alone is successful about 50% of the time. Uh, after that, there's things like corkscrew manipulation, which I think I have a picture of here. So basically, uh, you're kind of rotating the baby so that the shoulder gets out from underneath the the pubic bone. Um, Emptying the bladder, if they don't already have a Foley, you can stick a Foley and just try to give yourself a little bit of extra space down there, and a quote-unquote generous episiotomy. Um, and as a last resort, um, fracture the clavicle and the, the anterior shoulder will slide down. I couldn't find a picture of that, thankfully. Um, <laughs> Post-abortion complications, uh, so that's kind of separated into early, delayed, and late. So early is defined as within the first three hours of procedure. Uh, uterine perforation is one. It presents with diffuse abdominal pain. A lot of times they can have referred scapular pain. Um, and then I found that it's kind of interesting. You can also get a small bowel obstruction because mesentery can get trapped inside the uterine perforation. Uh, they also have low-grade fevers and obviously persistent bleeding and usually, you know, post, I guess not a postpartum hemorrhage, but a post-procedural hemorrhage. Um, in that case, you would want to... I'm sorry, I'm, ta I'm talking about uterine adeny now with the, the hemorrhage. But um, at that, you want to massage. And you can give a dose of oxytocin or vasopressin, obviously, with the direction of OBGYN doctors. Um, also, they can have a previously undiagnosed coagulopathy. So if they have von Willenbrand's in the past, when they got a, you know, a scratch, it just bled for a long time. But now they've had you know, scraping and lining of the uterus, and it continues to bleed and bleed and bleed. Um, Cervical lacerations are another complication, uh, sometimes from the forceps that they use to hold the cervix, and then when they pull them out, they just cause cervical laceration, or from the instrumentation themselves. Um, if you can see the laceration, they recommend repair with ochromic um, in non-interrupted fashion. Uh, DIC, obviously this is more common if you have a second trimester abortion um, and potentially prolonged fetal demise that you didn't know about. Uh, or if massive blood loss occurs during the procedure. And of course, amniotic fluid embolism and pulmonary embolism can also happen post-procedure. The delayed complications <laughs> happen between 3 and 28 days after the procedure, so these are the kind of the most common group. Uh, the most common thing being uh, retained products of conception. So 70% of people are going to present in the first 2 or 3 days after an abortion with um, pain and continued bleeding are going to have retained products of conception. Um, they can also have a septic abortion, so that then those retained products of conception become secondarily infected. Um, you can also have an undiagnosed ectopic. I actually had this once. Um, this, it was one of your cases, actually, 
in the small groups. I don't know if you guys remember, but she she had an abortion, you know, several weeks before, and then she just had severe vaginal bleeding and, you know, had a ruptured ectopic, um, but they, and they cleaned out the wrong spot, <laughs> essentially. Um, what else? Endometritis and peritonitis present within the first three hours, 28 days. The kind of triad for endometritis is uh, uh, uterine pain, fever, and bleeding with foul-smelling lochia. Uh, also, toxic shock can present kind of you have to have, so it's with, um, gosh, I forgot the the offending agent. It starts with a C. I'm sorry, I forgot what it is. But basically, you have to have a really high clinical suspicion because their initial presentation is very mild. They present with kind of mild flu-like symptoms after an abortion. Um, but your kind of key presenting factors will that they will have significant leukocytosis, kind of out of proportion to their clinical presentation, as well as hemoconcentration due to third spacing. Um, and those will be like, out of proportion to the clinical. And then, so basically they present with these mild symptoms and then they just crump and go into fluorid shock. So something just to have a, you know, in the back of your head when these people present with mild flu-like symptoms, which pretty much all these things kind of present that way. It's delayed. So three hours to 28 days. Um, and then the late is cervical stenosis and Asherman syndrome, which, you know, we don't really deal with a whole lot. Um, so after a surgical abortion, it's normal to have mild bleeding and discomfort. And the beta HCG, sometimes if it's on here, we have a pre-procedure beta HCG. So you should know that it should fall 66% within the first 48 hours after the procedure. Uh, will it be abnormal? It's persistent or heavy bleeding. And the, the general, um, what our obstetricians and gynecologists use is two pads per hour for two hours uh, continually. And that's usually associated with retained products of conception. Was that Clostridium surgillion? Yes, that's the one. Thank you. What is it? Clostridium? For the Clostridium surgillia. Surgillia. Clostridium surgillia. The toxic shock in post-abortion? Yeah. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, endometritis. So, again, a triad of fever, uterine tenderness, and foul-smelling lochia. Um, these people should be hospitalized and receive broad-spectrum antibiotics. Two regimens um, that are typical are listed there. Risk factors include C-section, chorioamnionitis, multiple vaginal exams during labor, and the use of internal monitoring devices, because all those things, you know, kind of introduce external bacteria inside the vaginal canal and uterus. This is what we feel like sometimes. Uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy. So this is going to develop between the last month of pregnancy and five months postpartum. Uh, presents exactly the same as, as CHF. So you've got dyspnea, orthopnea, rails, uh, on x-ray, cardiomegaly. They often have abnormal EKGs, but there's no specific EKG finding that's consistent with postpartum cardiomyopathy. Um, and then you also treat it the same way as you would congestive heart failure, which is what, Lori? Uh, Lasix. Lasix. And then how can you help them breathe better? So BiPAP or nitroglycerin um, are ways to help also. So those are kind of the mainstays of treatment in congestive heart failure. Uh, mortality is pretty high, 10 to 20% for postpartum cardiomyopathy. So sexual assault, um, so we're not a designated sexual assault hospital, so we don't have rate kits, we don't do the exam. Uh, so just kind of in, in our, this is kind of a slide for our particular institution, um, your physical exam should be 
pretty limited uh, in in the your exam should be throughout everywhere else except the you know the vaginal <coughs> area. Um, just kind of take a peek uh, to see if you see any large lacerations or areas that you can repair or that need repair. Um, but anything else that you do is going to be disrupting evidence. So basically, just take a a brief look. You know, gloves. Don't try not to alter anything that's altered, um, and then leave the rest to the, the rape examiner. Uh, also, they should be offered uh, emergency contraception, HIV prophylaxis, and STD prophylaxis, which is um, a single dose of ceftriaxone and azithro for the STD prophylaxis. So, do we transfer yeah, they get transferred mm -hmm. if they walk in. Yes, exactly. So the state of California has a has that kit that Karen had on the slide and it's detailed instructions, several pages of what exactly what to do, comb the hair, pluck three, put them in the in the envelope, um, and all kinds of And I read too like if 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 one of these things is mislabeled or if you didn't cross your T or dot your I, like it's just it's gone. Like you can't the chain of custody. Yeah. So they are going to scrutinize very carefully, you know, exactly how it was done, particularly if it you know goes to trial and stuff. Um, do they teach teach us how to do this if we're at an institution that does this? Because I would I would have no idea. Like, read just read the directions. Step by step. Yeah. I'll probably mess that up at some point. Okay. Hyperemesis gravidarum. Um, so definition, persistent vomiting, weight loss greater than 5% of your pre-pregnancy weight, uh, and ketonuria. They will have no abdominal pain and no fever. So it's pretty much a diagnosis of exclusion. If somebody has other symptoms other than just, I mean, they can have some epigastric discomfort um, and kind of burning type pain, but they should not have ab you know, significant, significant abdominal pain or fever. Highest incidence is between 4 and 10 weeks. Um, other things to consider, pilo, appendicitis, pancreatitis, cholestasis, gastritis, and metabolic disturbances. Um, so they should pretty much be tested for any of those things that you have a suspicion for, because hyperemesis should be a diagnosis of exclusion. What? Yeah, molar pregnancy, absolutely. Um, include D5 with the rehydration therapy, something that might get overlooked in the brain smart because we're so used to ordering NS for everybody, um, but these people really need that, that uh, extra sugar. Um, reasons to admit these people if they cannot tolerate POs at all, they have any elect significant electrolyte abnormalities, hyper, uh, hypo, hypo, thank you. <laughs> my, my mouth wanted to say hypopotassinemia. Um, which you want to get in the picture, but anyway. Um, and then um, one RCT. Oh, one randomized controlled trial showed that ginger was actually pretty effective in decreasing first trimester nausea and vomiting, um, which is just something that, you know, people with significant vomiting, you can kind of recommend to them. 
Um, I wanted to show Ahmed my slide. You see? You can also I gotta go back. Hold their prenatal vitamin. So the prenatal vitamin, the iron in the prenatal vitamin is very nauseating. Um, so you can, they can, you can get the gummy prenatal vitamins don't have iron in them. That's so loud. Yeah. I saw him today on the way out from the ET. Oh, yeah. Ahmed. I have no idea what your presentation's about. I'm assuming about pregnancy. Go back one slide to your hyperemesis. Yeah. Uh, I had a patient yesterday who had hyperemesis gravidarum in her first pregnancy, and then this is her second pregnancy, came back, was having vomiting. Um, the workup was for hyperemesis. She ends up having a molar pregnancy. Oh, was she yours? Yeah, she ended up having a molar pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah, Jason mentioned uh, to watch out for for molars in these people that have a lot of vomiting. <laughs> so this um, this picture, uh, th I don't, who knows if this is true or not, but the story that came along with it was um, the mom uh, works at Home Depot and they had just had a big storm and they were selling out of all their shovels until people were offering to pay her for the last shovel. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the pictures, this one, Weber? <laughs> Good Lord. Okay. Um, so, non. Dr. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Elrefite is going to give us a great lecture on vaginal bleeding in pregnancy, but um, just a quick review of vaginal bleeding and uh, not in pregnancy. Uh, what's the difference between menorrhagia and metrorrhagia? Uh, Candace. Perfect, yeah. So, again, menorrhagia, heavy bleeding during your normal menstrual cycle, metrorrhagia. Uh, is an abnormal timing of the bleeding. And the way I remember that is that menorrhagia has a T for time, T timing. Um, and then you can also have menometrorrhagia, which is a combination of los dos. So normal menarch happens uh, ages 9 to 14. Um, so this is actually, I've seen this twice, where, you know, uh, neonates, like eight, five days or six, up to 10 days, come in um, with some blood in their diaper. Uh, and they have a little bit of vaginal bleeding, and the parents are very, very concerned. Um, but if it's just, and this is what it would look like on the diaper, small amount of vaginal bleeding, obviously you need to investigate for, you know, trauma or sexual abuse, um, but it's common for them to have uh, bleeding from withdrawal of estrogen exposure in the first 10 days of life. Uh, vaginal bleeding in children less than six. Kind of a list there, I guess I'll read it. Rhabdomyosarcoma, endometrial sinus tumor, malaria and papilloma, foreign body. 
Uh, kids really like to put things in their privates or near their privates. Uh, they will know what the most common foreign body is for children under six. Toilet paper. Good. Uh, sexual abuse and uh, sometimes they can get into their mom's birth control pills and then take a bunch and they have withdrawal bleeding. Um, so does anyone know what the picture is showing? Yeah, sarcoma. So those are just some things to think about when you have children under six with vaginal bleeding. Older children can have urethral prolapse as shown in the picture which can cause them bleeding. Um, <coughs> precocious puberty which is defined as having two secondary sexual characteristics before the age of eight. And then cell arc, which is defined as cyclic vaginal bleeding without any sex characteristics. So obviously we're not going to diagnose any of those things uh, in, in the ER, but things to be aware of that can cause vaginal bleeding in, in children between six and nine. In reproductive age females, what's the most common cause of vaginal bleeding? Period. Pregnancy. So, uh, well, after a period, obviously. That's, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Uh, but other than that, um, it can be really, it can be related to most likely, so after your normal menses, after pregnancy, and ovulation is next on the list. Um, basically what happens is you don't release an ovum, so there's no corpus luteal cyst, which means no progesterone. So the endometrium keeps growing without the progesterone there, and it outgrows its vascular supply, and then sheds off. Uh, and that's why it happens with anovulation. Uh, fibroids or cervical polyps, with an interesting spelling there. Mm -hmm. Coagulopathy, uh, either von Willenbrand's or ITP. Sometimes they're not diagnosed until they have their first period, and then um, it's you know prolonged and heavy, so you test them for von Willenbrand's. Infection, chlamydia, gonorrhea, etc. Endocrine, uh, PCOS, thyroid, hyperprolactinemia, adrenal insufficiency, and ex exogenous steroids. Also trauma and neoplasm. So in postmenopausal women, bleeding is considered what? Yeah, endometrial cancer until proven otherwise. Uh, also, older age women tend to be on Coumadin and Plavix for heart issues, so that can cause some, uh, if it's their INR super therapeutic, that can cause some bleeding. Um, and in any postmenopausal bleeding, an endometrial biopsy is indicated. <coughs> Not by you, but they, you need to make sure that they have follow-up. Sometimes... Uh, if they're there for other reasons too, sometimes uh, OBGYN will do an endometrial biopsy in the ER, but it's not the standard of care. So as far as management of vaginal bleeding in the ER, ABCs come first. Uh, ultrasound can be useful, uh, mostly as an outpatient. There's not a lot of things that we'll find on our ultrasound that's going to affect our management, but um, you can kind of help the patient in terms of their workup for their abnormal vaginal bleeding. Always do a speculum exam, uh, looking for lacerations or other causes of bleeding outside of the uterus. Um, if, if they're going to be, I've never done this, but I, I read it like in various resources, but if they're going inpatient, you can give conjugated equine estrogens, 25 milligrams every two to four hours. Have any of you attendings, have you ever given like estrogen IV? No. Um, and then outpatient, you can you can give Provera uh, 2.5 milligrams four times daily or a birth control combo pill. Um, and what they say is to have the patient of the birth control pills. I know that there's like 28 days, but you have them take two pills a day until the bleeding has decreased, and then one pill a day for seven days after the bleeding has stopped. Um, and then you know obviously they're going to have some withdrawal bleeding, but that's to be expected. And then NSAIDs could actually decrease menstrual bleeding, um, and 
if that doesn't make sense to you because it's antiplatelet, um, it's due the prostaglandin, uh, antiprostaglandin effect. So when the prostaglandin levels are decreased, <coughs> it can decrease vaginal bleeding. And studies have shown that it actually decreases at 30 to 50 percent. So that's pretty significant. So the recommended uh, NSAID for vaginal bleeding is naproxen. I wish we could write this on our discharge paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's all. Any questions? Yeah. Which one, huh? No, like just the picture? Uh, like just a slide in general. I'm, I'm the note person. Oh, gotcha. This doesn't have to be for everyone. I can't see it. Oh, no, you can't. It's, it's okay.